0: What grace God has richly lavished upon us that we get to come together the first Sunday of the year to worship him, to pray to him, and now to hear his word preached. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So I pray that this sermon And every sermon you hear coming from this pulpit this year will serve you in exactly this way, to bear fruit, to sanctify, and to increase and cultivate holiness in you, and to save uh, sinners. So with that said, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the text. Let's, Let's pray. Lord, what truth is contained in the hymn we just sang, that we need you every hour, we need you in this very hour when your word goes forth we need you because we need to have humble heart and i need you this hour because i am the least of your mall yet it is entrusted unto me this gospel to preach at this hour i pray that the gospel will be presented clearly truthfully with uh, with power with conviction that comes from your spirit Lord, glorify yourself. Oh, may everyone decrease here. May Christ Jesus increase. This hour we pray. Amen. So this sermon is about killing sin. This sermon is about killing sin. Just so just so that we are sin. Just so just so that we are on the same page for the rest of the sermon, let me briefly define for you what killing sin is. What is killing sin? Let me define it for you because it's not as obvious as it appears to be. Killing sin. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is not knowing God's law and what he requires of us. Oh, I didn't know that coveting other people's possession is forbidden by God. Well, that's not a valid excuse before God. My friend Jordan Chipka is from Ohio and had never driven in New York City before. In 2017, we came off George Washington Bridge and took a right turn on red. A police officer promptly stopped us, and Jordan didn't know, I didn't know, Jordan still got a ticket. So sin in ignorance is still a sin. Sin is also knowing what God requires of us and not doing what he says perfectly and wholeheartedly. We know God requires us to honor our parents. We disobey them. Uh, We know God opposes sinful anger. We still lash out and harbor bitterness. We know God commands sexual purity. We still watch things we should not watch. So all in all, sin is not doing what God requires of us perfectly and wholeheartedly, whether we know his statutes and laws or not. And so that is sin, not doing what God requires of us in any way possible. Now, what do I mean by killing sin? Uh, well, what I mean by killing is going to be different from how the word killing is commonly used in English. In English, when someone or something is killed, that person or that thing is, is dead. Uh, that's the end of it. Right? 2004, kill Bill by... Uh, volume 2 by Quentin Tarantino, by the end of Kill Bill 2, Bill is killed. When you kill Bill, Bill is dead, and that's the end. There will be no Kill Bill 3. Right? But when I say killing sin, I don't mean completely ending the presence or occurrence of sin in your life. I don't mean if you succeed, with killing sin you'll be perfectly without sin for the rest of your life. First John 1 8 if I if we say we have no sin We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So killing sin is not the perfect elimination of sin What is it then? Well? killing sin is the habitual weakening of its apparent power the persistent decreasing of his occurrence and the consistent victory over his temptation. It's a mouthful, let me, let me explain. Take myself as an example. I know I had an anger problem since I could remember things. I still had an anger problem after I became a Christian. James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, it's, it's a sin. Well, what then does it look like for me to kill the sin of anger what well, it means I am less and less inclined in my heart overall to be angry. It means I get actually angry less and less frequently. It means the things that used to tempt me to be angry become less and less tempting and enraging. Will I get angry still? Yes. Well, I get angry when my, when my daughter doesn't sleep that well. All right? So I still get angry. Sin has now vanished completely. Right, but sin is habitually weakened, increasingly rare in occurrence, and it is stubbornly resisted by me. And that's what I mean by killing sin—not that sin is over, but sin is systematically and substantially subdued. And that's what this sermon is about, and that's the goal we aspire—we're aspiring toward—killing sin. Now. Why am I devoting the first sermon of the year to this wonderful topic of killing sin? Let me give you a few reasons why is of the utmost importance for all of you, especially Christians here, to kill sin. Reason number one, because killing sin is the chief duty and call of the Christian life. It is the chief duty and call of the Christian life. If I were to summarize the whole of the Christian life into one thing, this grand, subject of Christian living distilled into one essential calling, it will be the conformity to the person and character of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, phrased in a positive way. In a negative way, I would say without hesitation that the Christian life is about killing and mortifying sin that still remains. This is the essence of my duty as a Christian before God killing sin. And that's the lens through which we should approach and view and live the Christian life. Right? John Owen wrote this, the mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works of our deeds of the f- is the consistent duty of believers. Right? Neither Owen nor I am making this up. Romans six twelve. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And you know there can be no sanctification without the killing of sin. Sin and holiness, they cannot live together. Ephesians 4, 21. You just read this. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires." And so all this is to say, if you are a Christian this morning, you have one job, and the scripture is everywhere speaking of that job, and that is killing sin. And since this is really the one thing, the chief call of your Christian life, how much more should we take care to know and to do it? Reason number two, because killing sin strengthens assurance of salvation killing sin strengthens assurance of salvation if you are a christian you have certainly experienced this before you sinned you sinned badly and then you began to question am i really saved well this is often the devil's further assault to discourage genuine believers the question is not unfounded because deep down we all know this Sin and salvation are at odds against each other. We have been saved from the power of sin. How can we live in it any longer? In the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 18 of the assurance of grace and salvation, paragraph four. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers or many ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted by falling into some special sin which wounded the conscience and grieveth the Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson puts it in a more concise way. High degrees of Christian assurance are simply not compatible with low levels of obedience. High degrees of Christian assurance are simply not compatible with low levels of obedience. Failure to kill sin will compromise and shake your assurance of salvation and make us miserable. Reason number three, killing sin, is necessary for joy and happiness. Necessary for joy and happiness. Look back to the past year, this last year. How many times did you become unhappy, sullen, and sad? And how many of those sad occasions arose because of sin? And not all, but many. Not all sadness is due to sin, but sin surely leads to sadness, if you have a healthy conscience. It is a rather sad thing to see the world advance in so many ways, but men have not figured out this, this most basic principle of life. Sin makes you sad, and sin makes you miserable. The one secret to enduring happiness is killing sin. Reason number four, Christians are frequently ineffective at killing sin. Christians are frequently ineffective at killing sin. Have you experienced this before? You're part of a discipleship program uh, where you sit, uh, sit down with a brother one-on-one in the church every week. The topic of sin comes up every week. Every week the script is the same. We go around and we share with the sin, what sin we struggle with. and While one person is talking and everyone else is quiet and had a sad and serious face. And then at the end the leader says, well, brothers, thank you for your courage, and thank you for speaking out. Uh, let's, let's pray for one another, and, and then the meeting ends. Uh, confessions and prayers are, are very essential in killing sin, don't, don't get me wrong. But you are just stuck in this time loop with the same script every week in the discipleship group or one-on-one, whatever it may be. And then you wonder if there is anything more we can do to kill sin. I don't think it's uncommon for professing believers to feel that sin often seems like a great mountain, and then we're trying to remove it with with a shovel. Sin is like this deep ocean, and we're trying to drain it with a straw. Sin seems like a ferocious beast, and we're trying to kill it with a Nerf gun. Sin is this Goliath, and we just don't quite know what to do with it, and where to begin to kill sin. Killing sin... It's not just the one job we have as Christians. This is also not a job we're particularly good at. And then finally, last thing, reason number five. Killing sin is little talked about in the church. Killing sin is little talked about in the church. When is the last time you confessed a sin to someone in this church? When is the last time someone in this church confessed a sin to you? When is the last time you sought out somebody, uh, saw help from somebody in this church to kill sin? When is the last time someone in this church sought you out to kill their sin? Church is not a Broadway theater which you go every week to watch something and be entertained. Church is not a golf club where which you go every week to relax and to socialize with people. Church is a hospital where sinners with serious soul problems seek help from our heavenly physicians uh, and and to be cured. We all have a part to play in each other's lives in this lifelong war against sin. This cannot be a topic we shun or rarely discuss. So I pray that God will cultivate and form a culture in this church where sin can be discussed among trusted and close brethren. The pursuit of killing sin is met with warm welcome and comfort, and accountability, and sin is met with a stubborn and firm alliance among brothers. So I pray that this sermon will serve this purpose for a long time to come. So this sermon is about killing sin. And what better text to go to than the first time the word sin appeared in the Bible? Now the first sin appeared in the Bible, the first time the word sin appeared in the bible so if you have the physical copy of the bible with you please turn to the book of genesis chapter four will be in verses six and seven genesis chapter four verses six and seven genesis four six and seven Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every verse, because this is the word of God. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I want to draw your attention to two things from this text. First is the description of sin, the description of sin. To conquer a foe, you first must know the foe. To kill sin, you first must know sin. So we'll begin with God's description of sin. And secondly is the remedies against sin. Our text is not just conviction and condemnation, it is here to offer us uh, help, practical ways to kill sin. The scriptures diagnose our hearts and then prescribe medicine for its healing. So two simple points for you this morning. First, the description of sin, and then the remedies against sin. So let's begin with point number one, the description of sin. When you read a story, and then a villainous character is introduced, the author often provides a detailed description of that character. I don't read a lot of fictions. Uh, I did read one fiction. It's uh, George Orwell's 1984, being a communist, former communist man. Uh, So this is from George Orwell's 1984, uh, one of the few fictions I've actually read. Listen to this. O'Brien was a large, burly man with a thick neck and a coarse, humorous, brutal face. In spite of his formidable appearance, he had a certain charm of manner. He had a trick of resettling his spectacles on his nose, which was curiously disarming. In some indefinable way, curiously civilized. It was a gesture which, if anyone had still thought in such terms, might have recalled an 18th century nobleman offering his snuffbox. So every phrase, every adjective, every angle is carefully constructed by the author. But the point George Orwell is making is certainly not the physical appearance, but the sinister undertone and the dangerous character of O'Brien. And that's exactly what God is doing in our text. The story of your Christian life has one main villainous character, and that character's name is Sin. So the first thing God does is to offer you a vivid, a disturbing, and hopefully stirring and gripping description of Sin. And it's all in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So let me point out four things about sin just from this one verse. Be warned, it is rather disturbing and troubling. And please be attentive because it's meant to be this way. Number one, I want you to consider the personhood of sin, the personhood of sin. That is, sin is like a person. Sin is like a person. To be very clear, sin is not a person. Uh, Sin is like a person, but sin is not a person. The triune God has three persons. The angels and devils are persons, but sin is not a person. Sin is a spiritual reality, is is an abstract entity, but sin is not a person. Uh, But look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. If you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God himself describes sin as if it is a person, It has a will and a desire on its own, and is acting and doing something to accomplish its desire and fulfill its will. Sin does not really have a will, nor does it really take actions. But God is warning Cain, and all of us, you may as well treat sin as a person, actively working against your soul. There's really no practical differences. And of course, Genesis 4 is not unique in describing sin as a person. The scriptures frequently describe sin as a person. Romans 7, 8, Romans 7, 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Sin came alive, and I died. Sin takes advantages of opportunities. Sin comes alive. Sin kills souls. Sin is a murderer and an assassin. Again, John A. 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So sin is a slave master who treats his subjects with cruelty and oppression. Once you are caught in sin's snare, it's very hard to escape. James 1:15, one more example. Just, just listen to this verse. It, it's, it's quite disturbing. Now listen to how James describes this: sin. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So sin sounds like this parasite that lives in and clings to our souls. It conceives, it breathes, it reproduces, it gives birth. It's not only alive, it also multiplies and it grows. How gross and disgusting, all this happens in our souls. Now this verse should be really disturbing to you which leads me to the why question. Why does God personify sin? For that matter, why does anyone use personification as a rhetorical device? Well, you know the answer well. Personification is meant to give us a vivid and deep impression of an otherwise abstract reality. It's one thing for me to say, Romans eight twenty one: the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All right. That's great, but it's a little bit, a lot more real, and evocative. When I say Isaiah fifty-five twelve, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So when God describes sin as a person, He wants you to be impressed, troubled, disturbed, and disgusted. He wants you to know the danger of sin is real concrete, and palpable. When I, sin, sin, when I say sin is lawlessness, and you say, oh, okay, all right, uh, sure. But when I say sin is a murderer, is a slave master, sin is a parasite, you become uneasy, an and you become alarmed. Sin is not just this invisible, abstract, an intellectual concept to be memorized, or recited, or taught on, or preached. It's like a person. It's a person you can see interact with, and fight against. And so you and I must treat sin with the utmost seriousness and solemnity. This personification is not only trying to tell us sin is real, but also sin is really dangerous. Because men are dangerous. Sin is not compared to a dove with, with an olive branch in its beautiful beak. Of all the things, sin could be compared to it's compared to a man. a beast. Men are dangerous. Men are capable of the most heinous crimes and unspeakable evils. Men are God-haters, murderers, adulterers, liars. Men are capable of inflicting the cruelest harm and pain upon one another and even finding pleasure in doing so. Jesus warned his disciples to beware of men. Paul wrote, man's throat is an open grave. Their their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The most dangerous creature to ever walk on the earth is man. And that's how you should think of sin. Consider number two. I want you to consider the secrecy of sin, the secrecy of sin. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Notice God does not say sin is knocking at the door, or sin is standing at the door, or sin is waiting to show itself at the door. It says sin is crouching at the door. The word here means to lie down or to lurk. In other words, sins in our lives are not always obvious or clear to our spiritual senses. For the simple reason that sin is very good at hiding itself. Sin finds a blind spot the eyes of the soul cannot see and do not reach or are apt to overlook, and then sin takes up its residence there. Sin lodges at the most remote corner of our hearts so that its moving and acting can go undetected. This is why unregenerate sinners are called the spiritually dead, blind and deaf, and they're in spiritual darkness. for for very reason here, because sin is secret, they do not see or understand the wickedness in their hearts. And even for Christians, even for Christians who have been given a new life, a new heart, and a new spiritual sense to understand spiritual things and to know ourselves, we generally do a rather poor job at detecting our own sins. We seem to be capable of living our lives without the slightest awareness of some deep-seated sins. And that's why David prayed in Psalm 19, verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is why Jeremiah uh, diagnosed the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why the writer of Hebrews warned us exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is playing a cat-and-mouse game with us and is rather good at evading our attention or notice and flying under the radar. Sin not only hides itself, sin also has many tricks and methods of hiding itself and crouching at the door. Some sins by nature are hard to detect. For example, the sin of pride. The sin of pride by nature is hard to detect. Jonathan Edwards wrote, pride is much more difficult to discern than any other corruption because by nature, pride is a person having too high a thought of himself. Is it any surprise then that a person who has too high a thought of himself is unaware of it? The very nature of it is to work self-confidence and drive away any suspicion of evil respecting itself. And the same thing can be said of the sin of hypocrisy. So some sins are by nature hard to detect. Some sins hide themselves behind virtues, color. We subtly label or phrase sins in a in a positive, positive way. We, we, we give sin a positive spin. A fear of men is showing deference and respect to others. Speaking mean-spirited and discouraging remarks is offering one's uh, honest opinion and not afraid of speaking the truth, is being, you know, speaking out your own truth, right? Covetousness is just trying to have a, uh, to have a better life, to have better things in life. Selfishness, stinginess, are simply being thrifty. Reluctance to evangelize is not wanting to shove religion down anyone's throat. Some sins also hide themselves by appearing to be little sins. it's just a a look, it's it's not lust. It was just a slip up, it's not profanity. It was just daydreaming. It's, It's not idolatry or covetousness. It's just frustration sitting in traffic. It's not complaintfulness and anger. Ralph Menning wrote this, sin has not learned, sin has not learned, but taught all the deceits, the simulations, flatteries, and false diplomacies that are found in courts. Uh, the frauds of tradesmen, the tricks of cheaters and jugglers, the ambushes of of thieves, the pretensions of false friends, and various methods of false teachers, these and every other kind of cheat and deception in the world. Sin teaches and practices upon us all to make us sin. So all this is to say, sin is very uh, secretive. Uh, All of this is to say sin hides itself very well. Number three, I want you to consider the nearness of sin. The nearness of sin. Verse seven. Verse seven. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door. When I was single, I used Seamless for most of my meals, which for those of you who don't know, is a food delivery website, which you can choose what dish to order from which restaurant it will be delivered to you within like 50 minutes, let's say. There are different delivery options, uh, but I always choose meet at the door, meet at the door option. That means I can jump up from my chair, walk five feet and get to my food, right? At the door, means nearness. At the door means closeness, proximity, and accessibility. Uh, sadly, what is at the door is not dinner but sin. Uh, sin is not a distant or external entity like dirty laundry, right? If you don't wanna see it, you just throw it in the laundry basket and hide it away. No, sin is real. That's what I do at home. Uh, sin is real and sin is close at hand to us all in fact sin lives in you you can be more sure that sin dwells in your very being than your brain is in your head and your lungs in your chest paul speaks of indwelling sin romans 7 21 so i find it to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand the writer of hebrews testifies hebrews 12 1 listen to this let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Solomon declares sin's presence in the heart, Ecclesiastes 9.3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. The Lord Jesus himself speaks of the fountain, the source, and the residence of sin. Where is sin living now? Where can you find sin in this world? Right, Matthew fifteen, nineteen. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Sin lives in our hearts. Think about your living situation. Who lives closest to you? Well, my neighbor lives pretty close to me. I could hear my next door neighbor doing construction while I wrote the sermon. Well, good thing there's a wall between us to provide the distance and keep us apart. That's good. There's someone else who lives closer. Maybe you live with a roommate. Gare and I used to live in Manhattan together for two years, and I could see him routinely exercise, listen to sermons, and cook beans in the living room. Well, I can still go into my own room and keep the bean smell at bay. Someone lives closer yet. Someone lives closer yet. My beautiful child, Violet, needs Mama and Dada to play with her during the day and do tummy time with her and hold her and feed her. Uh, recently, we want to sleep train her, so, so we put her in the second bedroom at night as a designated sleep spot. So at night, there's less baby time unless it's diaper change or feeding. And then, someone lives closer still. We share not only the same apartment, same children, but the same room and same bed with our spouses. That is literally someone who rises up and lies down with us every day. But none of them, none of them comes close to the proximity of our indwelling sins. Sin is at the door. When you leave the house in the morning for work, you part ways with your spouse and your children but you do not part ways with your indwelling sins. When you leave for home for the holidays, you are separated from your roommates and your friends at church, but you are not separated from your indwelling sins. You can rise up to the heavens, and you can dive into your indwelling sins will be right there with you. It's in you and it's clinging to you more tightly than the stubborn cough that just will not go away, more than the hair that gets stuck on your beautiful sweater, more than the spider web that lodges at the corner of your roof. Sin is at the door. Sin is your doorman, except it lives with you. It lives in you 24-7, 365 days a year. John Owen wrote this, Sin always abides in the soul. It's never absent. The soul is its home. There it dwells and is no wanderer. Wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do and in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they're in company, when alone, by day or by night, all is one. Sin is with them. Finally, number four, I want you to consider the desire of sin. The desire of sin. Verse seven. Verse seven again. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. A nearness is not a bad thing per se, absolutely. I love living with, together with my wife and, and daughter, but alas, the companion that never goes away is not a friend, but a staunch foe. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin doesn't want your money. Sin doesn't want your friendship. Sin doesn't want your status. Sin doesn't want your career. Sin cannot be bribed, bought out, befriended, or negotiated with. Sin wants nothing but you. Sin is coming after you and you alone. Sin is this avenger that forgets about the rest of the world except its target and it has set a target upon you and nothing else. Are you scared? You should be. Sin desires our destruction and eternal misery. Sin wants us dead, and sin wants us dead in sin forever. Sin desires perpetual and persistent domination over the whole of man. Sin does not want part of your allegiance. It wants all of your soul. Sin desires the utmost evil and the most extreme immorality. Sin is not satisfied to be little in your life. It always wants to be the worst version possible. Every lustful glance wants to be full-blown adultery. Every fist of, uh, fits of rage wants to be assault and murder. Every jealousy wants to be theft and robbery. If you are in Christ this morning, even so... Sin's desire is contrary to you. Sin knows it has been defeated by the cross of Christ. It has no more controlling power or domination over you. But sin still wants to make your life as miserable, as unhappy as possible. Every time you watch what you should not watch, think what you should not think, say what you should not say, do you not feel sad, gross, dirty, grieved, downcast? If you will go to heaven by sheer grace and grace alone, sin still wants you to have a terrible and miserable time here on earth before then. Sin's desire is contrary to you. And that is sin, is no laughing matter. It's personification, it's secrecy, it is all of us. It is all of us, the regenerate and the unregenerate, the Christian and the unbeliever. And then you also see the necessity of God's word here, the necessity of God's word here, you must, you must rule over it. There is no room for negotiation or uh, negligence. This is a matter of life and death. It's not a maybe, probably, or perhaps. It is a must. It is a necessity of life. And finally, you see what it is that God calls us to do. You must rule over over it. You must rule over it. The ruling over sin, or as I said at the beginning of the sermon, the killing of sin is the great call and command from God for believers. Kill sin, subdue sin, rule over sin. Well, how can I uh, kill sin? Point number two, remedies against sin. Remedies against sin. I'm going to give you a series of remedies, against sin or practical directives for killing sin. All of them come from the text in one way or another. Uh, In other words, most of you uh, might have read this text before purely through the lens of God's displeasure and judgment on Cain. But I think if we read closely, we will find God offering several remedies against sin for us. Is not purely God coming to just expose uh, Cain's sin Uh, But also, it's God coming to offer him help to fight sin. Uh, These remedies are more or less uh, arbitrarily ordered, except the last remedy is the most important one. And uh, for the unbelievers, for those of you who do not know Jesus here, the last remedy is the only remedy I have for you. Forget about the first few. Just focus on the last one. The last remedy is the most important one. Let me run through them with you. Remedy number one. Pay close attention to the word of God. Pay close attention to the word of God. Verse 6. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, that's your remedy, God spoke to Cain. Now this should absolutely uh, be amazing to you. Uh, Because Cain had sinned a manifold of sins before God appeared to him to speak to him. He didn't bring the right sacrifice to God. He was very angry at God for not accepting his sacrifice. Angry at Abel for somehow being the favorite, favorite unfavorable one before God. He was not ashamed of letting everyone know about his anger. His face fell. Then God still came and spoke to him. Cain not only sin- had sinned against God, he also would sin against God more after God spoke to him. And God knew Cain would sin against him more after he came to speak to him. He would secretly plot evil against his brother. He would speak and lie to his brother. He would betray his brother's trust. He would murder his brother, and then he would think nothing of the murder. He would talk back to God in defiance and utter lack of repentance. He would dare to negotiate with God and wallow in self-pity. And he would show no sign of repentance even to the end. God knew all of this. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain. Isn't that amazing? If you know all of my sins, you would never want to come and speak to me. God knew all of Cain's sins. The sins he had committed and the sins he would commit, yet he came and spoke to Cain. God speaks to sinners. God speaks to the sinners. And that is the best hope sinners such as we have. See how valuable and helpful God's word is for Cain and for sinners like Cain. God's word is a diagnosis of Cain's heart. Verse 6, why are you angry? Why has has your face fallen? God gets to the point. That's the most immediate diagnosis. Cain, you are sinfully angry. God is saying, Cain, you are sinfully angry now and you are wallowing in self-pity. God did that for Jonah too. Will you do well to be angry? God's word is a diagnosis of all of our hearts. Psalm 19.8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. When I read the Bible, I know what is wrong with me. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. That is what's wrong with me. And the Bible is a diagnosis of my soul to bring to light the things that in me that I would not have been able to see otherwise. It's a mirror of my soul. God's word also is also a warning of grave danger of sin for Cain. Verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is contrary to you. God is hell and king. Sin is dangerous. And sin is dangerously close to you. Beware. God's word contains warnings uh, for all of us regarding the danger of sin. From God's word, we know the wages of sin is death. From God's word, you know if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. That's from Hebrews 10. Um, and from God's word, you know your adversary, the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. From God's word, you know friendship with the world is enmity with God. From God's word, you know that many deceivers have gone out into the world. God's word tells us sin is dangerous. Don't play with the fire. Don't flirt with an adulteress. God's word also gave Cain practical directions to fight sin. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain is supposed to hear this and think this way. I want to be accepted, but I'm not. So there's something I'm not doing well. Wait, but my brother is accepted before God. So he must have done something right. So let me imitate and follow his example. So I will not bring the wrong sacrifice. I will not be angry. I will not wallow in self-pity. When you turn to God's word, you find practical ways to kill sin. You You hear this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You hear this, ask and it will be given to you. And you hear this, if we confess, Our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You hear, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, all I'm trying to say is this. You can have strategies and tactics when it comes to killing sins, but you must make sure your strategy, whatever it may be, comes from God's word, and it must involve God's word the reading and meditating of God's word. A man who is consumed with God's word has better knowledge of himself and his sins. A man who is consumed with God's word simply has no time or desire to sin because he is so drawn and captivated by God. A man who is consumed with God's word has the spirit of God who is the spirit of truth working in him to kill sin. You cannot want to kill sin and then immerse yourself in the wisdom of the world. Because to kill sin, we must pay attention to the word of God. Remedy number two, remedy number two. See through the symptomatic sins and discover the underlying sins. See through the symptomatic sins and discover the underlying sins. Let me explain. Symptomatic sins are sins that are most obvious straightforward and easily observed sins. You, you cannot mistake, mis- mistake them and you will spot them immediately. Such sins usually lie on the surface, so to speak. For example, anger is a symptomatic sin. When you lash out and when you get really agitated, you know it, you see it, there's no mistake about it. Viewing pornography is a symptomatic sin. Again, there, there can be no mistake about it. Lying or speaking falsehood is a symptomatic sin. You know the truth. You're not living or speaking according to truth, and you know it. Now, the reason why I call a whole class of sins symptomatic is because there are usually symptoms of some more deeply seated, rooted sins. Just as symptoms reveal a more hidden sickness of the body, I don't know, I don't see if viruses have already attacked my body, but I do know something is wrong with my body when I start coughing and aching. In the same way, these symptomatic sins reveal some underlying disease in the soul. Let's take Cain as an example. Let's take Cain as an example. What do we remember Cain mostly for? Being a murderer. But that murder is but a symptom of a more underlying sin of anger. Before before he murdered his brother, verse 5, Cain was very angry. Exactly like what Jesus said. Whoever is angry at his brother has committed murder in the heart. Now, anger is also a symptom of a further and deeper sin in the heart. Why was Cain angry? Because his sacrifice was not accepted. And for some bizarre reason, his stinking brother's sacrifice was. Cain was jealous and covetous of his brother, exactly like what James said. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This sibling rivalry is fueled by jealousy and covetousness. Now, jealousy is a symptom of another further and deeper sin. Why was Cain jealous? I never get jealous over anything my wife does well or accomplishes because I love her. Seeing her fruitfulness is a joy to my soul. Jealousy does not exist. Jealousy does not exist where there's perfect love and unity. Cain was jealous because his default mode or attitude toward his younger brother is that of enmity and and hatred. There is rivalry, competitiveness, and jealousy because he does not love his brother. Then we trace this in a little bit further. We'll find Cain does not love his brother, because ultimately, he only loves himself. And he is selfish. He's consumed with it himself. And when one is consumed with himself, he is not consumed with God. He is an unbeliever. He is dead in his unbelief and rejection toward God. And isn't that really the heart of the matter? That Cain had no faith. Hebrews 11:4. 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So what I'm trying to show you here, is that by this one sin of murder, we can trace it all the way down to his unbelief. And along the way, we discovered layers upon layers of sin and what is going wrong in Cain's heart. So two practical applications. One, take one symptomatic sin in your life and uncover it layer by layer until you reach the deeply rooted sins. If you only cure the symptom you'll never beat the disease. If you only stifle the symptomatic sins, you will never kill sin well. If you watch porn, definitely download Covenant Eyes. The app will send suspicious screenshots to a trusted brother of your choosing. You can even just dumb down your phone. Do all that, but never for one minute think that's all you need to do. The underlying sickness of the soul that drives pornography viewing is going to channel itself into something else if it cannot express itself in poor, poor viewing. It will channel itself into some other sins. The selfishness, the pride, the irreverence and unbelief are going to transform themselves into unloving words towards your spouse, laziness at home, vanity in thoughts, apathy and lack of zeal for the Lord. There's, a, there's an idiom in Chinese that says, if you want to kill a snake, Go for the heart. Brothers, we need to chop off the head of that beast that crouches at the door whose desire is contrary to us. Application two, see and recognize the breadth and the variety of sins in one sinful act or occasion. When a sin has gotten so conspicuous that you can no longer ignore it, which we're very good at doing, if a sin becomes so conspicuous that even, uh, even we cannot ignore it, there are usually many sins packaged into one already. So you just watch porn. Analyze one sinful act. What other sins, even non-sexual sins, can you recognize and see in your heart? Did you treat God's holiness with irreverence? Did you break your marriage vow which you made to God? Did you fail to exemplify godliness, which you teach your children? Did you, teach your, did you say to yourself that you are the king of your life, and you get to choose when and where and how to satisfy your own desire? There are usually many sins packaged into one sinful incident, like what Cain is doing here. So bring them all out as much as you can. Related to this remedy, number three, remedy number three. Take care to not overlook or ignore the least occurrence of sin and the smallest occasion of temptation. The story of Cain is tragic because he had so many opportunities. He could have paused and thought about his enmity and rivalry against his brother. He could have paused and given more thoughts about his jealousy. He could have paused and seriously, seriously considered his anger and self-pity. But he didn't. He let every little sin escalate and every temptation pass through him, unchecked, uh, undeterred, and unresisted. Brothers, we must not do that. Every sin, every temptation is not just something to be killed or overcome. Every little sin is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to peek into our hearts and to know more about ourselves. When you get frustrated, uh, sitting in traffic, or being cut off by someone. Uh, you get road rage. Right? It's a good opportunity to ask ourselves what that incident reveals about ourselves. No matter how seemingly insignificant you may think of it. Well, I'm doing this, I'm not harming anyone else. So, so why, well, think about it. It will be good for you to kill your sins. Remedy number four. Consider the consequence and the sting of your sin. Consider the consequence and sting of your sins. Most people, most people only weep for their sins when they experience the consequences and feel the sting of their sins. And Sadly, they only see the consequences of their sins after they have already sinned. If only we all have the, the, the ability, we all have the, uh, the, the, the power to consider the sting and the misery from sin before the act right? Verse 10. Verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, "My punishment is greater than I can bear." OK. You should have thought about that earlier. OK, you have no idea the punishment to come if you continue in unbelief. We sin ultimately because we think it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal because we think we're saved, or because God will tolerate it or because I sin, So what? Sin has a deadly and miserable consequence. It is a big, big deal. Think about the consequence and the sting before you venture into sin. Last one, most important one. This is the remedy for all of you, believers, unbelievers. For those of you who are apart from Christ, forget everything I just said. Focus on this one. This is the only remedy for you this morning. Remedy number five. Always remember and cling to the third brother. Always remember and cling to the third brother. This is the most important thing in all your war against sin. All the other remedies are useless without this one, especially if you're not a Christian this morning. This is the first and the only thing I call you to do. If you are in Christ this morning, you must never neglect we're set aside this remedy. And the remedy is, again, always remember and cling to the third brother. No, the third brother is not Seth. The third brother is what God had promised earlier in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, with a serpent, I'll put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It speaks of the seed of Eve, the the, the son of Eve, crushing the head of the serpent and putting an end to all our sins. This third brother is the son of God who set aside the eternal glory as ceaseless praise of heaven and assumed the human nature. He became one of us. He was made in every way like us, tempted like us, grieved like us, ate and drank like us, except he was born of a virgin and he was not corrupted by sin. And like you and me, he had no need to kill sin. We we have to kill sin. He had no need to kill sin because he had no sin. Yet for our sake, to put to death our sins, he took upon himself all the transgressions, disobedience, and iniquities of all his people, not a sin of the elect was left out. None was deemed too insignificant. None was considered too great to be atoned for. All, every sin was put upon Jesus. He was accounted for us a sinner, and stood in our place on that cross to pay the death penalty we deserve, to suffer the wrath of God, the just anger of God against us in our stead, the once powerful tyrant called sin, oppressing, ruling over us, is now publicly disarmed A nail to that cross. It is overthrown and it is killed. When he said it is finished on that cross, when he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, you who were once in sin are now free. You are no longer dead to sin. We're dead in sin. You're dead to sin. You're no longer dead in sin. You no longer have to sin. You're no longer obligated to sin. On the third day after death and the burial, Jesus triumphantly rose from the grave. Sin and death could not keep hold of him. Death was swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? He rose again. Uh, so that we who have repented and trusted in him will not only be safe and secure for all eternity, but now we can also start to walk in the newness of life here and now. So brothers in Christ, this is the key to a godly life and your sharpest weapon in killing sin, Jesus the Christ. His righteous life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection. Look to him, look to him in his life imitate him and follow him you will find no better example of righteousness apart from him look to him in his death you are free and you are now more than conquerors you can defeat sin for sin is defeated for you on the cross look to him in his resurrection you can walk in the newness of life you are a new man now you're a new person with a new heart new mind a new desire a new power he has done so much for you. Can you wound him further by sinning more? Draw near to Jesus every day. Think of him fondly every day. Cling to him and listen to him every day. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is the longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. For me. That is how you kill sin. Now to those of you who are not in Christ this morning, some of you know you're not a Christian. Some of you presume you are a Christian, but you are really not because you have never ever killed a sin, a single sin in your life. Let me conclude by saying this to you. The third brother was the object of Abel's faith. The third brother could have saved Cain. Could have been Cain's savior. The third brother is the object of faith for all of us in Christ. The third brother could be your savior this very day. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins and run to the savior. Tell him how you desperately need to be rescued from sins. Tell him how you, he alone can do this work and perform this miracle for you and trust in Jesus, his righteous life his sin-covering blood, and his life-giving resurrection. I pray that this day will be the day of your freedom from sin and the start of killing it. Let's pray. Lord, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Lord, there is no greater remedy than the blood of Christ against our sins, desires contrary to us. You have called us to rule over it. We cannot rule over it by our willpower, by our own new year resolutions, by our own uh, determinations. We can only rule over sin by the ordinary means of grace you instituted in our lives. Through your word, through meditation on your word, through the participation in the body and the blood of Christ by faith and even the partaking of the Lord's Supper. This and this alone is the most effective and powerful remedy. That is Jesus, our Lord and Savior. His life of righteousness, his uh, death of atonement and his resurrection of new life. I pray that every single soul present here will consider him daily, cling to him daily, The believers will love him more and more every day this year and to kill sin and subdue it uh, in their daily lives. And I pray that those who are apart from Christ will this morning, as they have heard the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, we pray. Amen.